Welcome to the Ab Initio podcast series, a Bankless Legal Guild production. If you are a lawyer, accountant, or tax professional, you're likely getting an increased number of questions from clients about cryptocurrencies, DAOs, and the blockchain in general. The purpose of this podcast is to help you answer these by having our established expert guests discuss current legal issues and cases on a regular basis. And now for your host, Mike Rabinovich, aka Comeback Kid on Discord. In this episode of the Ab Initio Bankless Legal Guild podcast, we speak with Evan Thomas, head of legal for Wealth Simple Crypto. Canada's first crypto asset trading platform registered under Canadian securities laws. We talk about Evan's career as a lawyer, his move into crypto, the criteria for allowing a cryptocurrency on the Wealth Simple platform, and much more. Let's get into it. Welcome to the podcast, Evan. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. I want to start by asking you to share with our audience your journey as a lawyer, where you started and how you ended up in your current role as head of legal for Wealth Simple Crypto. Yeah, I suppose it starts uh, before law. I had a bit of a journey um, after uh, after doing my undergrad degree in technology during the, uh, the dot-com boom, working as a, a developer um, and doing what I guess would now be called DevOps uh, for a couple of years. Uh, but then, uh, of course, the dot-com boom came to an end, and I needed something uh, new to do, and I decided rather than sticking in in, in the, uh, uh, the development world of, of going to law school. So I went to law school, but w- when I came out of it, I took my practice in the direction of, of focusing on technology because of that, uh, that previous experience. So I was a litigator for, um, you know, coming up on, on 15 years, uh, but focusing in particular on cases that had a technology aspect, um, whether it was a software project that went sideways or privacy or data security issue. I always, look for cases that had that that element. And that brought me to, starting about five years ago, to working on matters and involving in crypto. Um, so that was an element of my practice for uh, for a number of years. So um, advising clients on you know, regulatory and other legal risks related to uh, the, their, their business plans involving crypto, uh, acting um, as counsel in some litigation and uh, regulatory enforcement matters. Um, but it was, you know, while it was a, a non-trivial part of my practice, it wasn't the whole part of my practice, but it was still the most interesting part of the practice. So about nine months ago, I got the opportunity to to take on this role where I'd really get the chance to focus um, 100% on crypto, focusing on WellSimple's uh, crypto business. So after considering it, and briefly I made the, the leap um, and was um, it's just been great and getting an opportunity to do things that are different from what I did before. It's far more regulatory, far more commercial work, um, not really any any litigation, um, but it's 100% focused on crypto. Um, so I was able to, to do um, the parts of my practice that were most interesting to me and do that full time. Do you think because of your background as a litigator, you looked at the crypto space through a different lens as if you would say were focusing on corporate law or M&A law before you joined the crypto world? I suppose... Um, and I think as a, as a litigator, you're, you're particularly, um, attuned to risks because so much of your practice is about dealing with situations and assisting clients when things go horribly, horribly wrong. Um, so you, uh, you know, perhaps you're more cognizant of, of risks, um, but also, 
um, that, you know, even if they materialize, um, you know, they can, they can be, you know, you know, dealt with, um, they can, you know, decisions can be defended, actions can be defended. Um, I suppose though, you know, one of the skills I think I, I picked up, um, and one of the realizations, I guess, as a litigator is just the importance of, of narrative, you know, the facts of a case and just how important that they are to the outcome as well as policy. Like what is the, what is the law trying to achieve, um, uh, from a policy perspective, those are really, to my mind, what I've learned as a litigator are what drive the outcomes because judges are people and they're looking at the facts and they're looking what the policy is and they're, and eh, the law will evolve, um, to, uh, to get to the outcome that they, they think is, is just. So as counsel in litigation, you're always trying to persuade a decision maker to see it's your ways so you're emphasizing the facts, you're emphasizing the policy. Um, and I think, you know, one thing about crypto, so much of, of what we lawyers do in it, we're trying to persuade a lot of the time, I suppose, to some degree courts, but regulators, policymakers, and even frankly, the, the general public about how things should be, how regulation should work, what rules should apply. Um, and so, you know, when I, I fall back on, on some of my learnings from litigation about the importance of narrative and about the importance of policy and really trying to marshal that when trying to persuade, now it's not judges anymore, uh, but try and persuade whether it's regulators or policymakers what something should be is, is really emphasizing the facts of you know, whether it's the technology or the protocol or, or the platform and also the policy um, that we're trying to achieve, you know, whether that's you know, protecting, protecting consumers or you know, protecting assets uh, and really leaning on um, you know, sort of what I learned about persuading people and trying to bring that um, uh, bring that to, to crypto in, in my current role. Looking at the Canadian regulatory landscape, what are the key themes in the crypto space that you see for the rest of 2022 and beyond? Well, for about the last year, there's been quite an effort by Canadian securities regulators to get both crypto platforms that are based in Canada, but also those that are abroad but have Canadian clients to register under securities laws. And that's going to continue through 2022. We're going to continue to see, um, you know, custodial crypto exchanges uh, register under Canadian securities laws. Uh, there have been a number, including ourselves, who have been registered to date. There will be more that are located in Canada. And I think eventually we will see foreign uh, ones, ones that are based outside of Canada, have more of a global footprint, but operate, but have Canadian clients uh, registering and complying uh, with uh, uh, Canadian securities laws. I think we'll also see some cases um, being decided um, on the enforcement side, Canadian by Canadian securities regulators against the platforms that aren't taking steps to be compliant. And we'll see some decisions there. Uh, and be interested in the outcomes there. Uh, we'll see the Canadian securities regulators, I imagine, um, weighing it to date. Their efforts have been focused on trading, you know, the the activities of buying and selling crypto, custodying crypto. We'll see them weighing in on activities like staking or crypto lending, uh, possibly even even DeFi. So I expect we'll see more sort of regulatory guidance uh, or, or, or um, you know, commentary on those activities. But I think, the, and I think the last thing is I think we're also going to see attention from policymakers to date the conversation between industry, uh, the, the conversation around the regulation of crypto in Canada has primarily been a conversation between industry and regulators, but increasingly seeing uh, policymakers and politicians uh, focus on 
the space. Uh, just just the other day, uh, Alberta introduced some new sandbox legislation that that could apply to crypto-based businesses. There's some pending amendments uh, to you know, sales tax laws about uh, you know, the sales taxes and and Bitcoin mining. We're seeing um, you know politicians uh, publicly uh, state their positions on regulation of crypto. So that's that's definitely a, a very recent change, and I think that's that trend is going to continue through the rest of this year. One area that has drawn attention and debate surrounds the KYC criteria and whether they need to evolve in the crypto age, specifically as they relate to reputation, investment needs, and knowledge. What's your take on that? You know, it's interesting. We, we you know. Canadian securities laws are not unique in this regard. It exists in, in the U.S. and, and elsewhere. There's, I mean, this uh, obligation um, of you know securities professionals as gatekeepers to uh, securities markets to you know know their clients, understand their clients' needs, their investment objectives, their risk tolerance, um, their capacity for risk. And to determine whether or not a particular investment is suitable or not uh, for that for that client, um, and you know that's a core element of of the securities laws historically. But when you think about crypto, well, certainly crypto can be used for trading and investment. Increasingly, it can be used for uh, many other things, um, you know, gaming or you know, metaverses, um, those aren't investment activities. So um, do some of these concepts about, you know, understanding a client and their investment needs and investment objectives, um, do they have as much application for a platform like ours where, yes, we are providing access to, you know, investment opportunities in, in crypto, but we're also providing access to, Tokens that we can use for can be used for non-investment activity. So we're now blurring uh, lines uh, between uh, activities that that historically were were pretty distinct. You, you didn't go buy, you know, stocks um, so that you could play a game. Um, but now uh, with crypto, um, there are multiple activities uh, that you can put, participate in, and your access to those is through through platforms like ours. Um, uh, that uh, that are regulated purely from a securities lens. Um, so yes, I mean, do I I think some of these rules around knowing your client and their investment needs and their investment objectives and, and, and uh, suitability determinants will need to evolve. Yes, and I think it's because crypto is is broader, increasingly broader than just uh, investment and trading, and uh, is is being used in a variety of activities, gaming, payments. Um, you have it, and I'm sure will continue to to do so. Another definition that there seems to be a fair bit of debate and discussion about is the accredited investor exemption. Is it time for an update, uh, especially as it relates to its impact on equality and investment opportunities? Now, when it comes to, and I'm going to focus, uh, I'm going to focus on on crypto in particular, you know, because I mean, the debate is that you know, accredited investors uh, requirements that apply in Canada and the U.S. Um, you know, what they those requirements allow. Is allow securities um, or allow investments to be made by individuals without the issuer having to comply with various requirements uh, under securities law. Like most prominently, you know the requirement to issue a, you know, a, a prospectus, like you would for, um, you know, if you were uh, uh, issuing making stock available on a on a stock exchange. Um, and you know, I guess the argument is is that 
um, uh, you know, to be an accredited investor, you have to have certain income, certain assets, and that's inherently um, exclusive uh, because it's it, there are many people who don't have the income or assets necessary to be accredited investors and therefore miss out on these opportunities, particularly in crypto, when they may be very sophisticated about the technology, they may fully understand the risks, um, and uh, it might be, um, uh, you know, even if they didn't have the income or assets, um, it, it may still be something they, they're perfectly content uh, to invest in. So, I mean, I guess the argument is, is that if those definitions were, you know, expanded to allow other criteria other than income or assets to qualify someone as a credit investor, or if the thresholds were lowered, that would give people, particularly in crypto, access to more uh, early stage investment opportunities. I think, you know, I get that. And, you know, I think there's a there's a very good to, debate to be had about um, uh, sort of the accredited investor exemptions and these thresholds um, and whether there are other ways of, uh, of of determining whether someone should be allowed access to an investment without the protections like a like a prospectus, but you know the, the practical reality is that you know you know since the sort of crackdown on public crowd sales um, ICOs, um, you know more and more early stage investments are you know being done by private sales under um, you know exemptions from securities laws. Uh, and there's also been a lot, a, a lot more professional investors, funds, you know, angels, others, people with significant assets and other uh, potential advantages to, um, you know, their portfolio companies entering the space. So, you know, increasingly, my my perception is is that you know, crypto projects raising funds these days, you know, they there's there's plenty of people who have both deep pockets and perhaps other advantages they can raise from. Um, and so the, they really don't need, um, you know, small investments from large numbers of investors. And, and frankly, that there are some downsides that come with that as well. So I think the question I, I'm posing with this, this long answer is even if the definitions are changed, is that actually going to uh, achieve a quality of investment opportunity? Um, because even if you're eligible to invest, that doesn't mean that the opportunity is going to present itself to you. You may not know the right people, uh, your check size may not be large enough that it's worth the time or trouble of bringing you into a round. So I think even if we, the definitions are changed, there's still a practical constraint here um, in that um, uh, even if you expand the pool of accredited investors, uh, there, there are many practical reasons why it doesn't make sense um, to, to invite them um, to, to invest. And therefore, it's, it's not actually going to advance equality of investment opportunities, except, uh, except in theory. With so many crypto tokens available and so many more coming on board, what are the criteria for allowing a cryptocurrency on the Wealthsimple platform? So this, this is a core um, element of our regulatory obligations. You know, under the terms of registration that apply to us as a regulated entity, um, we have to for any token we list, we have to do our due diligence on it. And we have to, you know, we have to look at, you know, the creation of the asset, its governance, how it's used. We need to look at the security, its roadmap. Um, we got to look at market factors. Um, you know, what's the market like? Is there liquidity? Um, you know, if, if we make this token available, are our clients going to be able to buy and sell it? Um, I touched on security, um, you know, definitely, you know, technical risks or something we need to uh, consider, you know, is there, is there, history of sort of defects in the code of there being security breaches. Um, 
Um, and then there's the legal aspect, um, you know, have as a team behind it uh, being subject to any sort of regulatory action. Um, we're also not allowed to list any tokens that are in and of themselves securities or derivatives. Um, you know, you know, really, uh, what we're listing are, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, commodity tokens in the sense they're not securities or derivatives under Canadian securities law. So we have to do a lot of due diligence on this. We're really relying, um, which is interesting. We're not the issuer of these tokens, obviously. We didn't create them. So we're relying on open source uh, information, um, but uh, pulling it together, scrutinizing it, and, and ultimately what we're driving at is, is this is this an asset that we should be making available to our, our clients in light of all of those, those factors? Um, um, and then we do have to put together some level of disclosure. Um, it's not like a prospectus, but we do have to provide clients with effectively a starting point uh, for their own research into these these assets. Um, so, you know, giving a bit of background about the asset, its use, its creators, as well as any you know, risks we've identified through our, our due diligence. But that's really a starting point for our clients to do um, their own to do their own research. Um, but yeah, we have to. So we have to be satisfied on a number of levels um, that, you know, this is a, a asset that has utility. There's a liquid market for it. There's no legal or regulatory concerns. Um, so we do have to put in a fair bit of work um, and then ultimately goes through an internal approval process before we'll actually make it available. While Simple was one of the first movers to open up the crypto space to retail investors, which was wonderful, uh, allowing trading as well as storage, do you find that investors are using the storage feature as a cold wallet alternative to make life simpler for themselves and more secure? You know, I don't, uh, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't say um, for sure um, whether they are or aren't, but it wouldn't surprise me. Um, I think, um, you know, even before we were on the scene, uh, you know, custodial exchanges existed and many people would buy crypto and just leave it there. Um, for a variety of reasons, um, but I can see why people w- would want to do that with us. Um, you know, they they know that you know we're a regulated entity. They know that we are working with um, you know, regulated custodians to hold um, hold client crypto. Um, you know, they have, I suppose, the comfort that you know between you know, regulation and regulated custody, you know, and other you know security. Uh, and risk management measures that their crypto is um, is going to be okay. You know, certainly more so than you know in the past when they were dealing with unregulated entities. Um, you know, more than a few of which you know, collapsed or got hacked or or uh, you know defrauded them. So I think I can see why people might take comfort in who we are and how we operate and choose to hold um, crypto with us as sort of a form of, of storage. Uh, we don't charge a Custody or storage fee, so uh, in a way, it's uh, it's uh, I suppose it's, it's a, a no cost way of of knowing that your crypto is uh, you know in in good hands. So no, it certainly wouldn't surprise me. I think that this is an important area, Evan, simply because one of the main barriers to retail investors' entry into this space is the complexity. And I think that, and one of those complexities, figuring out your wallet, there's so many of them and they have so many features. So uh, somebody that's regulated, like a Wealthsimple, I think would provide a lot more confidence for uh, for retail investors to enter into the space. So we'll have to see how that area evolves. Uh, another feature that 
while simple recently added enables investors to effect cryptocurrency withdrawals does this add a new layer of legal issues it it does um and just a bit of context when we we were the first platform to be regulated under canadian securities laws about um, almost two years ago and the initial iteration of the product was was what we call closed loop you could buy and you could sell but you couldn't move uh, crypto off or on um through further discussions with our regulators have got to a point where we we now allow deposits and, and withdrawals um you know on chain um and yes it does open up new um you know do new risks and new legal issues um you know canada is interesting it was not actually until june 2020 um so you know less than two years ago that anti-money laundering laws uh finally uh, applied to um dealers and virtual currency as they're known so it's only been the last two years uh, that uh, Canadian platforms like us have had to comply um, with, uh, you know, have uh, you know, compliance programs, you know, compliance programs make reports to FinTrack. Uh, many platforms had compliance and email pro- uh, programs before that, simply just because of good mismanagement. It became a legal obligation just under two years ago. Um, and then less than a year ago, June 2021, uh, a new, uh, the so-called travel rule came into effect in Canada, which is this rule that effectively says is that when, you know, you as a you know, dealer in virtual currency are, are transferring crypto on behalf of one of your clients to another platform, uh, you need to provide um, you know, information about the, you know, the sender and recipient. And, you know, if you're receiving it, you have to um, um, take reasonable measures to, to obtain it, uh, which is, uh, and, which as, as a requirement is, is a bit challenging crypto. Um, you know, it's not like Swift. You can't include that information with the wire details. Um, so, you know, the industry is working on, and this is not just in Canada, but, but uh, more broadly, on solutions for allowing that uh, information sharing between uh, uh, between platforms. Um, so, yeah, there are, um, you know, and then I guess the other uh, element is that, you know, once you can, uh, once you allow deposits and withdrawals, um, it uh, you know, it opens up clients to being targets for for fraud uh, in, very, in various ways, and that any any time fraud risk exists, there are legal issues that go with it, um, and so you have to be uh, you have to be very conscious of how you know, clients might be targeted for account takeovers or, or other kinds of, of frauds, and have you know controls in place to uh, to prevent and, and mitigate that. Uh, and you know if they happen, there may be be, be legal. Legal, legal ramifications as well. In the context of the regulatory landscape, Wealthsimple was one of the first, if not the first, I believe, to make use of Ontario's regulatory fintech sandbox. What was the experience like specifically with respect to complexity, cost, and impact? You know, some of this is uh, before my time at Wealthsimple, though I was aware of it. Um, but it wasn't just the, the Ontario sandbox. Technically, it was actually a Sandbox for the um, Canadian Securities Administrators, which is the umbrella group for all uh, 13 regulated securities regulators in Canada. Um, because in, you know, in Canada, you have your principal regulator, in our case, Ontario, but we are also accountable to the regulators in all other jurisdictions we do business, in, which is every province or territory in Canada, so 13. Um, we also currently are in discussions with with the self-regulatory organization, IROC, um, which will eventually be taking over regulation of of, of platforms, um, but you know, back to the experience with it. You know, this was very. The administrators, Canadian Securities Administrators, had issued guidance that crypto trading was within their jurisdiction, and that 
entities had to register um, uh, with securities regulators. Uh, but there were no no written rules. There were no rules that existed. So in a way, um, you know, the regulators and industry had to come up with what the uh, rules would be um, in the form of terms and conditions of, of registration. Um, and yet we were the first um, in 2020 to get the initial terms, and then we were the first to get amended terms last June. And that is really where these rules were largely uh, hammered out um, through, you know, discussions uh, between well, simple and uh, you know, and regulators. Um, so, you know, was it complex? Yes, because really there were the rules were largely coming from scratch. So there was obviously the framework of the existing uh, existing securities laws, where there were analogies that could be drawn, but a lot of things that are different about crypto. So it's complex. Um, you know, it took some time. Definitely, there were some challenging conversations. Um, you know, but um, you know, in, you know, working with the regulators, uh, you know, we did, uh, we did get there. Um, but no, it, it certainly there is a complexity to it. There's a cost that comes with it because, um, you know, both in terms of you know the, the type of professional advice that's required, as well as the opportunity cost, um, because you don't have the same freedom of action uh, when you're a, a regulated entity um, as when you're operating outside um, uh, of regulation. Um, so yeah, it was, um, you know, ultimately I think we, you know, we got, we got where we needed to be, uh, but it took some time, it took some cost and there, there was some complexity to it. Um, you know, my advice to anyone dealing with any sort of regulatory sandbox, Ontario, Canada, or otherwise, uh, is just the importance of, of having team members, you know, from the legal and compliance world who can navigate, uh, the, um, the regulatory side, um, but also, of course, having uh, the you know the, when it comes to crypto, um, you know either they or the team has the sort of crypto expertise. Uh, you do need do need both. I would not suggest that anyone try and participate in these regulatory sandboxes without having good legal compliance advice. Um, uh, I, I think that's that's key to, to navigating um, uh, navigating uh, that world. I want to pick up on something that that you brought up. We're looking at 13 regulatory agencies plus IROC. Uh, how challenging is it going to be to get consistent legislation across the board that everybody can follow? Yeah, you know, this, it, it, you know, this this is in a way not a new challenge. I mean, this has been the story of Canadian securities regulation for, for decades. The fact that they're it's regulated at a provincial level, not a federal level, and therefore all these regulators that have to get on the on the same page. Um, you know, you, we do already, to some degree, see some differences of opinion um, as to what the rules should be. Um, you know, in certain provinces in Canada, we can only allow clients to buy up to thirty thousand dollars a year of certain tokens, other than you know, for specified tokens, Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Ethereum, and Litecoin. Those clients can purchase an unlimited amount, but everything else, they're limited to thirty thousand a year. Uh, but then there are some provinces like Alberta, BC, and Quebec that have chosen not to impose that investment limit. Um, so there are these small differences uh, where different regulators in different jurisdictions see things differently. Um, and so in that case, the it's it's I suppose one element of the, of the overall uh, regime, and you know the rules otherwise are generally the same. Um, so it, it shows that the, you know the regulators in Canada they can. Achieve consensus. Sometimes it takes some time. Sometimes there are there are differences. Um, it, it's 
you know, it, it, I suppose, you know, in all candor, it can be frustrating, but it is something that's existed. It's a sort of reality of the uh, Canadian constitutional and legal environment and just something you have to go into eyes wide open and you know, work with, with regulators uh, and try and, and, you know, work with them to achieve consensus. And by and large, uh, consensus is achieved. Does this put Canada as, at a disadvantage from an innovation point of view? if we can get this kind of consistency in terms of a legal flame framework? Potentially. Uh, but then, you know, I also have to consider that, you know, Canadian securities regulators have achieved consensus on a, you know, that they should be regulating this space and, and be um, most of the rules that will apply within it. There's still obviously a lot of work to do, but compare that with the U S where there is no consistency um really at all there is um you know there is you know in the u.s it's the you know federal securities regulators have uh you know there's a, a much stronger role for federal regulation of securities in the united states than in canada yet you know there's still it's still very controversial about whether or not crypto should be regulated by the sec or the cfdc or the federal reserve or some other new agency um so uh, you know the u.s is having its own challenges when it comes to uh, achieving consensus, um, just of a different kind. Um, so yes, I think the potential is there. Um, uh, if you know, if there were uh, um, differences that could not, where you know, con- consensus couldn't be achieved, that could be that could hold uh, you know Canada back. Um, but it's not like it's a problem that's unique to Canada. Um, other countries, um, you know, the U.S. I mean, I'm supposed in the EU. Um, you know, may have these challenges as well. Um, uh, so it, it's not necessarily a risk that's specific to, to Canada. I think nobody can argue that this entire space is moving at lightning speed and it sometimes makes Web 2.0 feel like a walk in the park. Given the pace of change uh, from a regulatory perspective, from a policy perspective, the politics that get enter into it, uh, the security risks, as the head of legal for the crypto business what are the issues that keep you up at night you know i suppose you always think about you always worry about you know things like hacks or or fraud you know something that could um you know you know things that uh that could really affect your clients um and and and, you know by extension your business um but i think being observed beyond that that's sort of you know cybersecurity, privacy you know frauds and hacks um you know what i spend a lot of my time thinking about you know, at night or otherwise, um, is, you know, as how do we as a regulator and do all the things, the very interesting things that our product teams want to do, you know, how do we give our clients access to staking or, you know, DeFi or, you know, you know, NFTs or whatever, you know, these are in a very increasing, you know, new and exciting, you know, innovations, you know, how do we open that up to our clients? Um, but to do it within the, the regulatory framework that applies to us, because we're very much, um, you know, we're now, you know, in, in quite uncharted territory. Um, you know, so that requires, you know, creativity, um, uh, you know, you know, in terms of, um, uh, uh, as well as um, sort of effort to, to educate and work with, with regulators. Um, you know, and, and, and related to that sort of strategic risk, we also, you know, what also worries me is how do we keep pace with what other platforms that aren't subject to the regulations that we are. Um, how do we keep pace with them? Um, you know, there are platforms that aren't subject to regulation, and they have, 
uh, more freedom of action in terms of their ability to just roll a product, um, you know, as and when they, they see fit. Whereas, you know, we, we have to go through a process of, you know, thinking through the regulatory requirements and consulting um, with our regulators and potentially getting more formal approvals. Um, you know, so that introduces sort of a strategic or, or business risk that is, um, you know, that, that, that uh, can weigh on me. But I just want to know not to say it's the, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I'm up at night thinking about it because I'm worried about it so much as, you know, these are, you know, heavy, uh, complex yet, um, you know, very interesting and, and stimulating issues to be, to be thinking through. Hindsight being 2020, when you look back, what advice would you have given yourself before you entered the crypto world? Uh, you know, looking back on it, um, I, I would have said go in, go all in earlier. Um, you know, I I was working in crypto um, as part of my practice. Um, you know, for the last five years, I guess. Uh, but you know, it was a portion of my practice I mentioned earlier, um, and I don't think what I recognized until. You know, this sort of last year is the asymmetric upside of it all. Um, uh, that uh, uh, you know, yeah, there could be downside of jumping all in, but there's also a tremendous amount of upside, you know, on a, on a number of dimensions. Um, and I have real admiration for very brave lawyers uh, and others, uh, frankly, who jumped, you know, both feet um, into crypto in 2019 or to, or even early 2020 when it was still sort of the depths of the the bear market and no one knew if it would ever come back. And, you know, it, it didn't, didn't look that, that promising. So I really admire those, uh, those uh, folks. Um, and the advice I would give myself with the benefit of five years is to say, you know, uh, you know, um, should have jumped in earlier, um, or, or jumped further in, uh, earlier, uh, because of that asymmetric upside on, on, you know, going and doing crypto, um, uh, full time. I guess that's why we call it hindsight, right? So I think we've all experienced that. To close out, uh, I want to ask a forward-looking question. Gazing into the future, where will the crypto industry be five years out based on what you see out there today? Uh, you know, it's um, it's a hard question. I mean, if um, I suppose if I, I knew that, the answer to that, I should probably leave law and uh, you know, go into the, the finance side of, of crypto. But... I guess, and, you know, and I, and I realize I just don't have the, the base foresight. I mean, when I think back to myself five years ago, I wouldn't have had the foresight to predict things like, you know, the, just like the massive growth of DeFi or, you know, how sort of a multi-chain world has has evolved. So I probably have to pass on sort of, you know, technology predictions and focus on what, what I might be might have some insight in, which is sort of the legal and regulatory side. Um, and what I see right now is, you know, we're on this trajectory of, um, and this may be self-evident of increasing regulation of of crypto. Um, and even in the last five years, there's been very significant developments in how uh, you know crypto is subject to laws and regulations uh, worldwide. And frankly, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, I do think we are um, better off having a regulatory regime that applies to custodial crypto exchanges in Canada. Certainly, better off. Five years ago, when you know we had operators like you know we had operations like Quadriga CX that turned out to be you know completely fraudulent. Um, that's just because the risk there is not so much the technology, but the um, you know fact that there is there's counterparty risk um, uh, with sort of with custody with custodial exchanges. Um, 
And, you know, I think it's you know, perfectly appropriate from a policy perspective where you have these platforms that hold hundreds of millions, maybe billions of dollars of other people's assets that they be subject to certain rules and, and requirements. Um, so I see that continuing because um, I don't think custodial platforms like ours are going away any anytime soon. Many people, you alluded to this earlier, many clients, you know, they, they take some comfort in the fact that there's someone that they trust holding their crypto. Um, they want that security. They want those uh, protections. So they do want a trusted counterparty or a trusted regulated counterparty. Um, and then, of course, there are some players that are going to be required to use regulated custodians, um, you know, because we have, you know, certain funds or, you know, if we see banks or insurance companies or other regulated entities getting into the space, um, there's going to be a regulatory expectation that they hold assets with other regulated entities, um, because that's a pretty typical um, and well-known regulatory model. So I, I don't think we'll see, um, so I think there will always be a demand for 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 custody, um, even if a lot of, you know, you know, interesting things move fully on chain and people hold their own keys. I think there will be um, people who, for whatever reason, uh, need and or want regulated custody. Um, so I think we'll see more, you know, so continue along this uh, trajectory of, of regulation. Um, I think, you know, one of the things for people in the space, particularly the lawyers in the space, is making sure the regulation is is the right fit. It's not overreaching. It's not impeding, um, uh, you know, progress or, you know, trading on people's legitimate privacy interests. Um, you know, so hopefully we can uh, um, uh, steer uh, that uh, that regulation um, in the right direction. Where it is, you know, we're getting the the benefits in terms of protection and legitimacy and trust um, without, you know, some of the overreaches um, that that could happen um, if it's uh, if it's not dialed in correctly. It sounds to me like finding that balance is really the holy grail of moving this whole movement forward. I think I think that's right. It is it's, it is very much about um, you know finding balance, and um, you know again, sort of comes back to what I was saying about um, you know the importance of of narrative and policy, um, and you know being able to put forward a persuasive case about you know why rules should be um, you know as we see them, as opposed to what um, you know, other stakeholders uh, are, are saying they should be uh, to, you know, persuade politicians and policymakers in the public uh, about what the, the rules should be. So you know, I think that, yeah, it comes back down to um, really sort of dialing into the, uh, uh, leaning into the narrative, um, as well as, as legitimate policy objectives, like, you know, you know protecting, protecting people, protecting um, individuals and their assets. Well, I hope everybody's listening out there. I think those are some uh, very common sense words. Much appreciate your uh, insights today, Evan. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Well, thanks. It was great, uh, great speaking with you. Be well. Take care. We want to thank Bankless Dow for supporting this podcast. If you enjoy this episode, please like and share on your favorite podcast streaming platform and Twitter at Bankless Dow. Questions, comments, suggestions? Please join us in the Bankless DAO Discord server and post on the General Legal Channel or DM our host, Mike Rabinovich, at Comeback Kid. Till next time.